You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician Roundtable. I am Dr. Michael Benson, your host, and with me today is Dr. David Fishman. We are discussing ovarian cancer today, and Dr. David Fishman is a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at New York University School of Medicine. He is the director and principal investigator for the National Ovarian Cancer Early Detection Program, supported by the National Cancer Institute, and he has several million dollars of NIH funding. His papers and scientific presentations could be described in medical parlance as TNTC, too numerous to count. Welcome, Dr. Fishman. Welcome to you, Michael. I'd like to thank you for uh, being on our show today. What I thought we would do in terms of discussing ovarian cancer is discuss its epidemiology, some of the common presenting symptoms, techniques of diagnosis, treatment, and best of all, your research. To start with, let's talk about epidemiology. How common is it? Ovarian cancer is relatively uncommon. It affects approximately 2% of the female population. And this year, it's anticipated about 24,000 women will be newly diagnosed with ovarian cancer. The main problem we have with ovarian cancer is that the disease itself is the most lethal of all gynecologic malignancies and more women die from ovarian cancer than all other gynecologic malignancies combined. So approximately 14,000 women will be anticipated to die this year from this disease. The incidence has been slightly increasing over the past 10 years, and we really can't tell why that is occurring, with the average age of diagnosis around 58. For epithelial ovarian cancer, the germ cell malignancies, the average age is around 16 years of age, and the borderline or low malignant potential ovarian tumors average ages in the mid-40s. So ovarian cancer gets lumped into many different histologies, but the main lethal disease is, is the epithelial ovarian carcinoma group. Can you explain to our audience just briefly the difference between the epithelial ovarian cancer and germ cell cancers? Derivation from the ovarian tissue it goes back to the embryologic development. So the germ cell malignancies are those that are seen in teenage girls that are usually presenting at early stage disease, stage one, usually is most common. And these are almost uniformly cured today by platinum-containing regimens. The epithelial ovarian carcinomas continue to be diagnosed at advanced stage disease, and these are the lethal ones that women face. So we really have not made any progress on survival from the epithelial ovarian cancers, which are, are 90% of the cancers that the women face, and we have really had a great success story with the germ cell tumors. So I think if we're going to focus, we'd focus on the common epithelial ovarian cancers that are the ones that the adult women face. Do any other countries have a higher or lower prevalence of ovarian cancer? The distribution does vary worldwide, and it seems that epithelial ovarian carcinomas appear to be more pronounced in industrialized nations, but this certainly can be a bias because in third world nations, cervical cancer is the major life-threatening gynecologic malignancy. And in industrialized nations, cervical cancer is on the decline primarily because we have means to detect pre-invasive disease such as the pap smear, or now HPV testing. One question comes to mind when we're talking about third world countries. I know that HIV infection does increase the fatality and aggressiveness of some types of cancer. Does HIV seem to have any effect on ovarian cancer? That's a 
really a great question. Believe it or not, I actually have a publication in this topic. The thought was that it might, but I don't believe that's the case. So even though a competent immune system is necessary to fight ovarian cancer, we obviously impair the immune system by treating with chemotherapeutic agents that significantly impair the immune system. So I don't believe that most studies have found there is a, a correlation with prognosis with HIV. Now, what about ethnic groups within the U.S.? Are there any specific ethnic groups in the United States that may be at increased risk or perhaps even decreased risk compared to the average population? Well, I think the best way to phrase it is that women who use birth control pills, each year of use, they decrease one's risk by 10%. Those women who have a five-year or more use have pretty much maximized their decreased risk by about 50%, which is a very powerful tool. Those women who are at increased risk in our population are those women who are members of inherited cancer syndromes where we have either analysis demonstrating a significant increase based on genetic evaluation or those women who have inherited mutations predisposing them for breast and ovarian cancer such as the BRCA1 or 2 genes. So those are the highest risk population and the population that has decreased risk. What kind of family history would make you suspicious that somebody would be at increased risk? And I can tell you this comes up a lot if somebody has a grandmother who had ovarian or breast cancer, they perceive themselves to be at increased risk. But my impression is that's not really what we're talking about. No, and unfortunately, it's even more complicated. The simplistic answer is, unfortunately, in genetics, usually not the correct answer. So certain red flags that we tell everyone to try to determine risk is fairly straightforward. Know your family history. Unless you're adopted, people should be aware of cancers in the family, and the physician should be aware that certain cancers are associated with an increased risk of ovarian cancer, such as families with breast cancer, colon cancer, melanoma, thyroid cancer, GI cancers, pancreatic cancer, all may have a significantly increased risk for the development of ovarian cancer based on known inherited cancer syndromes. As we know, most ovarian and breast cancers are not inherited. In fact, only 10% are thought to be due to inherited mutations. So that means that 90% of these malignancies are sporadic. A fairly detailed history about members in the family with cancer should set off some significant concerns to the healthcare provider to question whether this person may be a really high-risk patient. The way that we work with patients is that all Jewish women who have ovarian cancer, we've published that 40% of these patients were found to have a BRCA1 or 2 mutation. And th these studies were performed as a multinational study in conjunction with Stephen Narod, who is the PI uh, who's based in Toronto. For our audience, uh, PI stands for Principal Investigator. He also found that 20% of premenopausal Jewish women with no family history of cancer were found to have a BRCA2 or 1 mutation. So based on these findings, it is our standard that any Jewish woman with premenopausal breast or ovarian cancer have a formal pedigree analysis by a board-certified geneticist to determine if they are at increased risk for being a member of an inherited cancer syndrome, and if so, are offered formal genetic testing 
in not infrequently, these women are offered prophylactic surgery to prevent themselves from getting breast and or ovarian cancer. So it sounds to me like there is actually an ethnic group that does have perhaps a higher prevalence or increased risk, and that would be Jewish women. Is that correct? Unfortunately, I, I can't give a, a simple answer. The incidence of the BRCA mutations in Jewish population is about 2.3%, which is between 10 and 100 times higher than that of the non-Jewish population. But just because one's Jewish, one can have a BRCA mutation, and not all mutations are associated with increased risk. There are hundreds of mutations on BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes, and not every mutation is a risk, meaning some mutations are not deleterious and some are. So the best way to determine if one is really at risk is to use the appropriate healthcare professionals, which are board-certified geneticists and board-certified genetic counselors, because they're trained, this is what their expertise is in, and they actually have boards to justify this expertise. So even in our program, Michael, where we see women from all over the world, the first step in our evaluation process is the patients are literally seen by a board-certified genetic counselor and geneticist. I see. Can you tell our audience just a little bit about the purpose of the BRCA gene group? All of us have BRCA1 and 2 genes. These are not unique to any ethnicity. We all have the genes. The mutations are thought to affect tumor suppressor genes. So genes that maintain our, our health state are affected or mutated, which lead to proteins that may stimulate a malignant process to occur. So the genes may be involved in carcinogenesis. What about the publicity surrounding the risk of fertility drugs and ovarian cancer? I think that the issue with fertility drugs it was appropriate because, remember, we don't really understand how ovarian cancer originates. So one of, one of the simplistic or thoughts about the etiology of ovarian cancer was the number of lifetime ovulations. Fortunately or unfortunately, it, it's not that simple. If the, one has more ovulations, then one would be at higher risk. That was the thought behind that, and that was the thought behind why birth control pills work, because it suppresses ovulation. The recent findings support that that's not the case. So the number of ovulations are not that, it's not as critical as one had thought. So while the studies suggested that there may be an increased risk with infertility therapy, the bottom line is that most of us do not feel that the reproductive technologies increase a woman's risk for the development of epithelial ovarian cancer. I want to thank Dr. David Fishman, who has been our guest, and we have been discussing ovarian cancer. I'm Dr. Michael Benson. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD. XM233, the channel for medical professionals.